welcome to risk roundup medicine is emerging to be a human machine collaboration that may ultimately become a symbiosis or even a cyborg relationship this relationship is still at an early stage where we see both humans and machines are performing tasks at which they are effective however as deep learning systems develop and evolve it is expected that machines will more and more assist humans with those tasks at which they are not very good so what are we humans good at we the humans are good at processing information from our senses including vision and we are very good at perceiving human emotions but we are not so good at remembering things searching for and organizing data and we are not too good at correlating and reasoning about that data this is where machine learning systems will add tremendous value machine learning systems will make physicians providers and practitioners faster and smarter in the diagnosis and reduce uncertainty in the decisions thereby reducing cost and risk and saving valuable time this is welcoming as there is an increasing concern that manual medical diagnostic practices that are driven largely by human intelligence are no longer sufficient to effectively perform complex disease diagnostic tasks on its own in a timely and cost effective manner from across nations there are numerous reports emerging that machine learning has convincingly penetrated complex processes of medicine especially medical diagnosis as machine learning seems to be on its way to transforming the world of medicine and medical mm -hmm. diagnosis it is changing the fundamentals of not only disease diagnosis and care but also healthcare to discuss this further i am honored to welcome dr kerry fogel to risk roundup dr fogel is the ceo of natural selection inc and is based in united states welcome dr fogel we are delighted to have you on risk roundup thank you so much for the invitation i appreciate it wonderful so when ai powered consumer facing diagnostic application that individuals can download onto their phones have started going mainstream the fundamentals of medicine medical care and healthcare seems to have changed forever are we witnessing a surge in initiatives on not only artificial intelligence based initiatives but machine learning applications for medical diagnosis Absolutely. So I think that uh, the applications you're seeing on smartphones are, are just the start. And I think that that's very, very, very interesting for uh, other countries that may not have first-rate medicine. They can have to make a diagnosis about someone just on a visual basis. Uh, that maybe someone uh, trained in that art might not be able to do easily without that machine learning capability. Yes, so very true. Now, what trends do you think are driving the deep machine learning revolution for medicine in general? What has made this possible? Yeah, so many things. One is the amount of data we're collecting about today is tremendously increasing, as most people know. Uh, whether that's genomics about one's DNA or proteomics, metabolomics, many different types of omics, uh, to demographic information about those people, uh, maybe where they're living, how, what kind of are they smoking, not smoking family history of smoking, things of that nature, uh, to environmental uh, issues where, where they live, if there's a pollution concern where they live, and all those things tie into what is the proper diagnosis for that particular person. And those number of variables, so many, many variables, it is hard for any one human to know how to link those variables together to make a decision correctly. People, of course, go to med school to learn those things, and they do very well at doing those, but it's an awfully difficult task. 
And you can have a computer learn those relationships very quickly, given a lot of data, to help the clinician make a better diagnosis, or in the case where there may not be a clinician, make a diagnosis in light of not having one, uh, to help someone with treatment or whatnot. That is so very true. You made a really excellent point that the variables, the parameters have changed so much and there is now a need for us to look at everything holistically. All Every single variable that is out there, we need to evaluate that and consider that. And it is just impossible for us humans to be able to do that manually. That's right. why, you know, machine learning probably, you know, is very, very useful because we can put all the data and the, the data input machine can, you know, very effectively analyze it and give us the results. So it's very, very useful and beneficial for the medical community. But if you are a medical practitioner, if you are a provider or a physician, how would you what would you want to see in an intelligent machine? How would you describe an intelligent machine or non-human intelligence that would bring fundamental transformation for the complex challenges that uh, you are facing as a medical practitioner? Yeah, so I can tell you a little bit about some of the things we've done to help with the community. So for instance, if I have all of those features, thousands of features to look at, it's not clear in light of data what are the most important features and, and their connectedness in order to make a decision about cancer or some other type of disease. And it's very useful then for the clinicians to have the machines try to do feature selection. So basically, instead of using all of those thousands of features, to try to have the machines understand what are the most important small set of features, 20, 30, 40 features, such that we could try to understand the system's biology of that problem with that small number of features rather than thousands. But do that sort of feature selection in an automated way and have those most important features making the decision about the cancer risk. And in doing so, not only do we make a better model that generates an output of cancer risk, but we also try to understand the system because these are the most important factors in that system. And this technology, the machine learning, allows you to do that feature selection simultaneously with the model optimization. So then it's possible for the biologist or the clinician to go back and say, why is it that those are the most important features and how are they related? and understand the biology of the system in a much greater detail than before. Before it was just, there's too many features and I can't understand the system. These technologies allow you to get to the most important ingredients of that system. And then you can do more examples and more science to understand, is that really true? We've done that in a lot of experiments, a lot of systems, a lot of different types of data. And having researchers go back and verify that, yes, the features that the model found were important in their connectivity in ways that people hadn't appreciated before. That's very, very gratifying when you do that. Uh, but it also then allows you to understand the system's biology and maybe invent new ways of treatment based on what you've found because of those pathways that have been found by the model. Yes, so I think that is a very important benefit that the medical community will see because now they can look at overall from a systems perspective so far you know the medical practice that was practiced by the allopathic medicine and modern medicine we were all the physicians they were all specialists looking at eyes or ears or throat or nose or you know each each individual our heart and they were not looking evaluating things from a systemic perspective now because of this advances, they will be able to look at things from a system perspective, a digestive system or, you know, cardiovascular system from all these different system perspective that would help not only the, them to identify the problem 
from the root cause, but also be able to treat that effectively so that, you know, patients would uh, not suffer for, you know, their entire life when they develop some kind of chronic disease. So this is very advantageous. It's more becoming like machine learning is to big data. It's becoming like how we humans learn from the life experience. So all these capability that they learn from the environment and that they're becoming intelligent, I think it's fundamentally reshaping the medical industry and it's very, very beneficial. So before we go further, why there is a need for machine learning? And we, we have talked about all these different variables where, that we need a holistic approach. We need to consider all the different environment variables. But why do the medical practice, especially if we are talking about diagnostics, why mm. is there a need for machine learning for the medical diagnosis? Mm, excellent question. Um, very good question. So I think, of course, when, when clinicians go to med school, they learn fantastic ways of looking at a patient to know, is there a risk of a particular disease? They're trained to look for certain things, and, uh, and they do very well. And of course, I, I'm, I'm one to think that humans should be in the loop for decision-making for a long time to come. I think there might be a time in the future when machines do get good enough at analyzing uh, tremendous volumes of data across lots and lots of patients to get to a point where we, we can't afford not to use them that they're, they're so much better than a human in a loop that we, it's almost like we, you should use them because they're the right answer. But until we get to that point, we have to work in a world where we have computers helping humans make better decisions about a patient. And not only the risk of a particular disease, but how to treat that patient in that disease in a very individualized way. And that is a very difficult problem, uh, especially because humans are very individual and we have our own backgrounds, we have our own genetic backgrounds, we have our own environmental backgrounds, we have our own history, what we've done to our body. And the treatment that we receive is based on all of that history. It may be very difficult for any one person as a clinician to know all of that history and understand how to relate that to a particular decision. So having better diagnostics that help a human clinician make a better intelligent understanding about what the correct situation is, such that they can make a better decision as a human to say, this is the right course of action for you, or this is what's happening to you. I think that's extremely critical for the way we use machine learning. And in addition to that, um, not only for diagnostics about what the disease might be currently, but also what's the right treatment regimen for this particular patient. There's obviously going to be and currently a need for, for instance, chemotherapy scheduling. What's the right order of chemotherapy to do for you or your particular type of cancer for its stage? Uh, and, and is this the right treatment order or a different order better for you? It might be that a particular order is exactly right for you and another particular order is exactly right for me. And rather than having it be prescribed by federal government or someone else to say this is the way that you shall give medicines uh, it would be nice to have a machine learning tool that would say for this particular patient this is the right answer this is the right way to do it we've seen these kind of patients before and this is the right order with high probability and then leave it to the doctor to say you know i can do that i can't do that uh based on what i'm able to do but at least have that option be what's the right treatment for the right patient at the right time so there's there's ways Go ahead. Sorry, please. Uh, sorry, I was just uh, trying to add that. So it's becoming more like a personalized medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that machine learning allows personalized medicine so long as we have enough data. The, the problem is, is that for every patient we have, it's so easy to generate such a huge volume of data, whether it's genomics or metabolomics or any kind of omics or other things, that for every one individual, there's a tremendous volume of data. In order to get to really understand what's the right treatment for the right patient at the right time, you need to look at lots and lots of patients with all that volume of data. And that becomes a huge big data problem to then feed to a computer to have it learn. And those are the kind of 
problems that a Google or someone else would be looking at to try to understand in that volume of data, what's the right answer for that particular type of patient. Maybe it is today we could cluster patients and their similarity to say, rather than an individualized treatment, it's more like Gary fits into cluster number 42, and because he's in cluster 42, and like other people, this is the treatment that worked best for that cluster rather than individual. And that's kind of where I think things are at right now. I would say that also it, it's possible to not only do the right treatment for the right time at the right for the right patient, but in a clinical trial setting, when you're trying new medicine, a new drug, uh, many companies, of course, spend a lot of money, billions of dollars on development of new drugs, and they go through a phased trial, FDA-approved trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three. And they learn a lot during that process, but they also routinely fail. Uh, most, only 10% of the drugs that start that process end up going to market. So 90% failure rate, which is pretty terrible when you're spending a billion dollars on a drug. It would be possible to look at, let's say, a phase two trial to say, who did it work for? Who did this particular drug work for and why? And understand the system's biology of that using machine learning. But then make a diagnostic that says, I'm gonna bias my phase three in a particular way in light of this diagnostic that says the drug is correct for these type of people and not correct for these other type of people. That unfortunately reduces your market size for the drug, but it at least gets you to a population where your drug actually does work with higher probability and allows you to get to market for that spend. Uh, so that's that's a that's a type of machine learning we're trying to trying to work on. That's amazing. I mean, so it looks like that machine learning promises to help. If we just look at the physician, then it promises them to make near perfect diagnosis, choose the best medication for their patients, like you were just you know talking about you know predict readmissions, identify the patients who are at high risk for you know uh, certain under certain situations, and uh, in general improve the overall well-being of the patient the not only just the disease care but the health care it's improving and it's minimizing cost so it's very advantageous but if we are looking at this then machine learning is promising you know for medical practitioner but when we look at clinical diagnosis what that you were just you know talking about the doctors still you know the whole field of clinical diagnosis is still real depends on the doctor's expertise and intuition, they are not very keen on uh, using machine learning. Why is that? Yeah, excellent question. And let me go back and say, before I answer that question, you had said that we're near, nearly perfect on diagnosis. I don't know if we'll ever be absolutely perfect. Biology has its inherent changes and dynamics that we don't yet understand. And any model is based on some kind of data that we've measured. If we're measuring the wrong thing or we haven't measured the right thing at all, then we haven't given that as input to the model that will never know to look for that because we haven't even given it that data. So I think our models are only as good as we can make them by the input we're giving them. If we haven't measured some critical aspect of biology that we get to understand, there's, there's no way our model would know to look for that. Um, so they're only as good as we can make them. I think that in general, not just in medicine, but in other fields as well, there's an inherent um, uh, concern about machine learning replacing humans, uh, because it, it maybe can be expert level. It certainly can be expert level uh, diagnosis, for instance. Um, of course, humans don't like losing their jobs, and I understand that, and that's a different kind of economy at the end of that experiment when we have computers doing everything and humans are wondering what they're going to be doing. Uh, and again, I'm not, uh, I don't propose to, propose to do that right now. I think it's important to have computers help humans do better at their job rather than replace them. I think in the future, there might be a day where that's, that replacement might happen. Um, and, it, and as I said before, I think there's almost a time in the future where uh, we look at the um, 
the record coming out of the machine learning and it's so so good and so wonderful relative to the human performance maybe the computers are so much better that we can't afford not to use them we have to use them because to just as such make such better decisions than what we can do as humans um, I think there's still a, a, a mistrust in the in the algorithms mainly because of the history of the development of machine learning there was a time back in the 60s through the 80s uh, in the first era of, era of artificial intelligence where you know, people were writing expert rules about what human expert clinicians would look for in patients. And of course, those rules can't hope to cover all possible types of, of diseases or all types of outcomes and would sometimes get them wrong. And then when a machine doesn't do well and doesn't get it correctly, do you trust the machine anymore? Because uh, I got it wrong on one patient. Now is it going to get it wrong on the next patient? And the, 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 the previous uh, lack of success in AI back in the 80s, I think, has bred a concern about the future of AI and is that still going to be um, as uh, maybe underperforming as it was in the past. I think we've learned a tremendous amount since the 1980s about how to make computers think in a smarter way. Uh, and I think that we've turned a corner on that for sure about the success, the success rate. Of course, you can never guarantee perfect uh, scores out of, of a computer, just like you can't guarantee perfect scores out of med school and clinicians. They make errors too. Um, so I hope we can help alleviate, for instance, uh, uh, the problems that physicians might face in making a misdiagnosis. Let's, let's reduce that rate and help the humans make better diagnoses and that will save, save lives. Sure, absolutely. And it, I mean, we are still in early stages, so it's more of a symbiotic relationship and the, we still have a lot that we need to figure out. Like, you know, we still probably don't have uh, the perfect algorithm that uh, would be as effective as a doctor. So maybe that is something that we still need to work towards, you know, making a technological advancement so that we can have perfect algorithm that would provide that confidence, that trust that, you know, doctors need to use that algorithm and to depend on that data without having a second thought because here the lot of legal uh, liability also adds up, right? I mean, if a doctor just depends on that al uh, analysis of the machine and if something goes wrong, then who is responsible? Right, exactly. So the liability issue also probably could be preventing the doctors to get yes. very excited about this and the cultural part, the doctors still don't trust computational diet. Right. I mean, right. Are, so. no, absolutely, yes. The other, the other the other comment to make is that, of course, um, machines and machine learning, you're training on a particular data set to make a particular diagnosis. Let's say it's breast cancer risk or, or pancreatic cancer risk. It's a certain problem. Humans have this amazing ability to look across problems. As a clinician, you can study multiple problems at the same time in med school, and you understand the relatedness of breast cancer and pancreatic cancer, whereas a computer that's trained on one of those problems even doesn't even know pancreatic cancer exists. It was trained on breast cancer. And so uh, there's still an inherent wonder in the ability of a clinician to be able to look across lots and lots of different problems and make sense of a patient's data in a way that maybe a computer can't just yet. I think that in the future we'll have computers that can understand multiple problems at the same time uh, and make better diagnoses because of that in a way that a human would. Uh, but still, I don't know if we're exactly there yet. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a journey we'll have to go through. But from your perspective, what should we do? What can be done for the machine learning technology to be accepted by these medical practitioners? What can be done? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, I, I think, again, it's it's a track record of success. People trust doctors because they've been very successful uh, at saving lives and doing wonderful things. And I think the longer that we have computers helping those humans do their job better, 
I think they'll learn to trust this technology even more and become reliant on it. Um, I th obviously, there's a lot of machinery that already has machine learning in it. Maybe people don't realize that yet, but you know, MRI machines, uh, lots of mammogram machines have AI already embedded in it to help the doctors uh, understand and show on an image where there might be a, a tumor or might be a problem and indicate that for a human automatically. Uh, so these technologies already kind of exist, but they're just not ever highlighted as a part of the tools that humans are using. But humans are very reliant on them already, I would say. Uh, that reliance is going to breed, I think, the trust that's necessary for the clinicians to take it to the next level. I got to say, though, of course, if I was a clinician, I wouldn't want to have this thing replace my job. So I'd always want to trust it to a certain point and then say I need to be the decision maker at the end. And as you pointed out, it also takes, I think, governments um, understanding the technology, which can be its own barrier, and then saying, for instance, in the Food and Drug Administration, a regulatory pathway, we're going to allow certain diagnoses to be made by computers because we have looked at the math and it looks like the computers are better than the humans, so we have to do that. Um, that level of trust in the computing algorithm at the federal level, at the government level, might take some time. And it's going to build up through generations of clinicians that learn how to use this technology. So it's almost like a public um, public uh, education uh, of having this people need to learn what the technology is, how it can be used, and how they can use it in their own daily mission as a clinician to help better humanity uh, and human health, and then to learn to trust it. And that takes doing these kinds of dialogues and getting people to understand what the risks are and uh, and how can things can be used correctly. Yes, very true, very true. And then we'll have to probably develop better, you know, easier computer interface for the physician, medical practitioners, because a lot of the doctors still are not even comfortable using emails. So there's a long journey that they will have to go through to be able to use all these very effectively and be technologically savvy. So we'll have to probably embed all these technologies, the machine learning into the already the all the equipments that they are using, the MRIs and CT scan yep. and all these. So we'll have to make that as a part of that so that they don't have to get overwhelmed that, oh, we have to learn all these technologies now. You know, we are already learning about the human body and anatomy and physiology and all these machines. And on top of that, now we'll have to, you know, go and educate ourselves with this. So we'll have to make the process simpler so that they don't get overwhelmed. But from how does the emerging intelligent medical diagnostic system that is being built on this machine learning platform from your perspective, how does it perform better in disease diagnosis than the human system? Uh, that is us, the humans, doctors, and how effective are those systems from your, from whatever, you know, the current state or what the, where we are in the industry and whatever abilities we have, capabilities of the machine learning based uh, medical diagnostic, disease diagnostic, from what you have seen, how effective are all that? Yeah, and again, uh, great question. Uh, it, it, the answer is very problem dependent uh, and even the type of problem. So for instance, if it's an image classification problem where I'm looking at mammograms or looking at MRIs or PET CT scans, things of that nature, where I have to look at an image and understand what the image means and if there's a particular region of that image that has a risk associated with cancer or something else. Um, screening those images can be done exceedingly well now with uh, computers using machine learning, deep learning. Uh, those kind of technologies to help identify, uh, I would say, spots, but areas on those images that look different than the rest that can be flagged for a human to go back and look at. Um, that done, that's done exceedingly well. Image processing is done exceedingly well. 
thinking about other types of problems like the right patient, right, right treatment for the right patient at the right time problem. That's a different kind of problem. There's not necessarily any imaging in it at all. Uh, it's it's a, a time series information about who's the patient, what kind of genetics do they have at this time point, here's all the possible medications we could give, what's the right order in light of all the previous patients that had the same starting point and their success rate, what's the right order of medications. That is a different, totally different kind of problem. And I would say right now that it's a balance between humans and computers understanding that space well enough. I think clinicians do very well. Uh, the, the problem in that space is more regulatory. It's more here are the things you have to do. And here's the order of treatment you have to do because in a previous clinical trial, this was the best of care. It's the best care, so give that care first. That may or may not be the right answer for that particular person. It may be the right answer on average, but it may not be the right person, right treatment for you or for me. Um, maybe we're average. I don't know. Maybe we're different than average. So uh, finding finding the way to get to the, really exactly the uh, the patient patient wise uh, individual care. That's a difficult problem that I don't even think clinicians truly understand. And certainly representing that to a computer is a difficult problem for them to learn. So within within medicine, you give me a huge field. Within medicine, there are particular problems like image segmentation and analysis that are working exceedingly well for machine learning right now because the technologies uh, have been developed off of face recognition and other types of image recognition and applied to medical reasoning in that particular sector, where other areas and other problems that are still of great interest to medicine really haven't been formulated yet in the proper way for a machine to understand how to solve it as well as a human can. Um, there was another another uh, question you'd asked in there that I'd forgotten. So if you can repeat or, or follow on for the different question, that'd be great. No, but if you want to, <clears throat> sorry, yeah. but if you want to continue, then yeah. uh, finish that thought yeah. process. Uh, sure, please go ahead. I think I think another another aspect of this is that you know not all societies in the world have the same level of medicine that we continually treat about in America, for instance, uh, or other developed nations. And if I'm in an undeveloped underdeveloped nation, um, I might not even have the access to a clinician. Of, of it's been med school. Uh, maybe it's a clinician that's a family physician kind of a thing. And having a tool that I could use on my cell phone as that person to say, here's the power of what it would be if I was at Stanford and at, you know getting getting a disease uh, diagnosis at Stanford Medical Center. Uh, and I can use that on my cell phone to take a picture of someone or someone's skin to say, is this melanoma or not? I don't know. I haven't ever taken med school, but here's an application that maybe you can tell me what's the risk this is actually cancer or not. Um, that will be very, very useful for an undeveloped community. Um, and I think that those kind of tools are now coming online to help the rest of the world. And I, I, that, that's a tremendous benefit. So using the machine learning to help in a way where the clinicians that we would consider to be the people we'd go see in the hospital, basically it's having that in a phone. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. And also, uh, there's a tremendous uh, issue, maybe we can talk about this next, of the cybersecurity risk around all of that data not only collecting the data, but then developing a model about that data to say these are the right things about certain people uh, and classifying people with certain people and having the security around all that data, that health data. Of course, there's fantastic regulations about the, the security, you know, the HIPAA requ requirements around that security of that data, but where to store that data, how to store that data, how to interact the model with that data, who's interacting with that data to see the patient data about their history and their health records and all that, and how are they using that and being secure about that. Those are challenges too that I think may actually inhibit um, uh, or postpone 
the ability of these methods to get to market. So clinicians might say, I just don't want to give out that data because it's extremely sensitive about the patients. And if you're going to develop a model, that's nice. But are you going to do that on, in my hospital setting? Or are you going to do that off-site somewhere? And if it's off-site, how do we transfer the data to you? And how do we make sure that it's secure? Those are serious concerns. Yes, um, those are very, yeah. very serious concerns. Absolutely. Right. And in fact, you know, we next week I am uh, having uh, an expert on risk roundup just to talk about medical device security because these are such complex challenges. And healthcare sector, people might be thinking that financial industry is the target of these cybersecurity hacks and uh, they should be getting the most at uh, cybersecurity attacks. But so it seems that it's the healthcare industry. Right. is the you know most vulnerable and that's where we are going to address this on a uh, another roundup so let's not you know talk too much on that aspect yeah. because we have so many different uh, topics to talk about but one question you know i have been thinking about this when I, since i started uh, thinking about this medical diagnosis uh, and machine learning what it can do for it but are the initiatives that we are working on are they only for non-communicable diseases like chronic diseases or are we also working towards communicable diseases like whenever there is an infection uh, that is going to spread or is going to become endemic or pandemic do we have are we developing capabilities using of course iot sensors so that we can quickly and effectively uh, using the machine learning and deep learning that we can quickly identify where the where is going to be the origin from where that infection is spreading and how we can quickly stop you know stop that infection from spreading further do we have such advances happening in that direction or is uh, some initiative working on that yeah epidemiology is a great subject and also very very good for machine learning very different type of medical data yeah. uh, where you have lots of sensors in the field uh, also, even satellite images about areas to say, are there, is there a drought going on? Is that related to the uh, higher probability of having an epidemic in that area or even the spread of an epidemic? Um, transportation and information about how fast people move in certain areas, if they are infected, where are they going to move most likely? And then maybe infect new people. And so, yes, I think there's a lot of machine learning that's of interest in that area. I haven't seen anything that's absolutely, of course, perfect about predicting things. Uh, unfortunately, one of the natures of evolution is that it finds a way, and uh, it generally finds a way we haven't thought of yet. Um, but uh, but there are people definitely looking at different sensing information, making models of epidemiology to know what's the risk of uh, an epidemic starting, and then if it started, what's the risk of it becoming a pandemic, and if it's going to be a pandemic, where is it going to go next? And in light of that, how do we optimize the allocation of resources to hopefully stop it before it becomes a, a pandemic. Uh, and I know that there are government agencies that are very interested in those kind of topics right now. Very difficult questions, lots yeah. and lots and lots of data, very difficult data to collect and very difficult models to make because unfortunately a lot of different diseases have their own way of spreading and have their own um, epidemiology. And it's, it's not as if I think you're going to find that there's one model that can do all different types of disease. It probably is that there's different types of models for different regions for different diseases. And that becomes very complex on its own. Yes, it, it is very complex. And uh, especially yeah. this is a cause of, I mean, the nature-born diseases that are coming towards us, we, have, we are used to it. And we are kind of predicting what would come our way every year. And we are getting ready for that. But the big concern is that with the synthetic biology capabilities, anyone sitting in any part of the world, just like you know, cybersecurity challenges that we are facing, that anyone sitting with a laptop in any part of the world, they can... Uh, 
create you know problems for anyone in the world they can uh, uh, have they can hack any system similarly you know with someone who is knowledgeable with use with the right tools they can create any kind of germ or pathogen and uh, release it in the environment to destroy any community or any country or create a lot of problems so if we we if, if we are not thinking in the direction i think we need to start thinking in the direction that we need to develop capability how will we identify or diagnose those kind of communicable diseases that are created just to destroy that particular nation or community or create complex problems for them so i'm sure there is not this is not going to be an easy task or an easy initiative but this is certainly needs to be addressed as we you know move forward you know as this all these tools like crispr technology and all these becomes you know more common and people uh, there are many many you know individuals or groups or nations if you are talking just about united states who would love to destroy united states so mm. we need to start thinking in the direction how i mean we are still struggling to prevent cyber security attacks in that i mean that i mean we, we need to start we still don't have capability or we are not even thinking in probably in that direction how to stop this kind of uh, communi- synthesized pathogen yeah that's so why I, I think there are it's a good question i think there are definitely um uh, concerns risk concerns in that area um i know there are people very concerned about that area and and making tools that can help identify something that is synthetically made versus something that's naturally made I'm still worried about the ones that are naturally made because they're still, you know, like the recent Ebola epidemic, we, we can't tell when the next one's coming and we have no real great defense for Ebola. So even the natural attacks are still pretty hard for us to handle as humans, uh, no less the artificial ones. But you're absolutely right. That does represent a, another risk. I think it's, um, it's still difficult to make those synthetic uh, creatures that could harm whole uh, populations and deploy them correctly and do all that, it's not an easy task. So uh, it, fortunately, I think is still very difficult to do, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about it. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't have the technology to hopefully remediate it if it was to happen. So there, there are projects, um, for instance, one that I've worked on with the, the Army uh, to look at uh, malaria. Uh, of course, the Army spends, or used to spend quite a, quite a lot of money on making new drugs for malaria uh, because malaria is a worldwide concern. Uh, mainly in tropical areas, and we have troops in those areas. Uh, the, Mar- the army needs medicine, uh, not only for the, army, the troops, but also for the world as well. Uh, but the problem is when we generate a new uh, drug, of course, what happens in the wild is that evolution evolves resistance to that drug within a few years, maybe three to five years. And we've seen that over and over and over again with different types of medicines that we make. Uh, the question I posed to them was, you know, you're not going to ever stop losing that game because evolution is always trying to outcompete you. So if you introduce a new drug, evolution is going to try to find a way to do the thing it was trying to do. And even if you're trying to block it with a drug, it's going to try to get around the drug and still do the thing it was trying to do. You have to use evolution in the computer in a machine learning sense to try to evolve the drug in a way that makes it really challenging or continually adapt the drug to let to have a longer life for that drug in the field so that the evolution is going to happen. But Maybe if you start with drug number one and the evolution happens, you already have drug number two ready because you've already kind of predicted where the evolution would go next in light of drug number one. And you can win, hopefully win the war against malaria if you could predict far enough in advance of where it's going to go in evolutionary sense. And we did some experiments with that using funding from the, uh, uh, from the U.S. Army and also from the National Institutes of Health. 
to show that you can use machine learning to help start predicting or understanding the path of the evolution of resistance in that setting. Uh, we haven't had enough funding to go all the way to what the future uh, uh, going to hold for that particular system. But I do think that there's a capability where we could say, if we were going to feel this particular drug or this particular remediation for a disease, what would the effect be on that disease? How would it change? And what's the next best thing we could do in that chess game? Yes. Yes, very true. Very yeah. true. That's now, a very difficult, very difficult question. Very difficult, very difficult. and yeah. that's why I think we will have to depend on machine learning, deep learning that yeah. can assist us because we humans won't be able to do that on our own. Yeah. We need the yeah. assistance of uh, deep learning and all these algorithms that you all can, you know, generate and create. So we we depend on you for that. Now, from <laughs> well, your, I don't, I don't from feel any weight on my shoulders at all. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 So, what from your assessment, the, all these applications that you are seeing based on machine learning for the medical diagnosis, which ones you think is are more promising? You know, not only just for diagnostics, but for overall disease care, healthcare applications. Yeah, great question. So, I, um, there are a few that working on right now. One, one uh, in particular with uh, funding funding from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, with a group from UC San Francisco and other and uh, University of Florida and another group bioinfo experts in Louisiana, looking at uh, the evolution of HIV in people. So unfortunately, when someone gets infected with HIV, HIV um, goes throughout your your body, uh, infects different organs in your body. You can get treatment. Of course, we have great treatments now, fantastic treatments that allow you to have a very long life. Um, in fact, those treatments are so good that it reduces the level of HIV in your system, in your blood system, so low that it's almost undetectable. But it's still in you. And it still evolves in different ways in different tissues and different organs over that time course, even though you're having treatment. And at some point, the, uh, the HIV gets to a particular place where it can sort of outcompete those drugs and still take back over again and unfortunately cause late stage issues that end, end life. Um, and we're helping with diagnostics that identify uh, how is the HIV entering a cell, and what's the right medicine in light of the fact that HIV is using a certain receptor next to the cell? What's the right drug to block that receptor to try to block the HIV from entering the cell to replicate? That would be one thing we're doing as a diagnostic. And the other is to try to understand what are the, the signatures, the, the, the evolution of the HIV, what allows it to make that escape at the end that it says it's coming out of a particular organ. It might end up evolving a particular sequence that allows it to get into your brain and cause dementia. What are the what are the sequences and how does that happen? What's the evolution of that? And understanding that system using machine learning, we've been very successful on that. We've had a long uh, a project with NIH funding to do that. We've had some papers that just came out on that recently. I, I, those are mysteries that um, are very very difficult to get at unless you have lots and lots of data. Uh, and we've been very fortunate to have a very large data set from UC San Francisco of patients that had HIV to study their time course and what happened to them over time. So I think that there's there's, yeah, there's really good um, opportunities for those kinds of, of diagnostics. Again, it gets back to not just having a diagnostic that says, what's your risk of this versus this? It's allowing the biologists, the clinicians at UC San Francisco to understand the system better, to say, I hadn't ever realized that these particular features were so important in this. What does it say that, what does that say about the biology? Let's go test the biology in a new way to understand why it is. And wow, we now we understand the system because the machine learning kind of gave us a clue. And it's like a magnifying glass to look at the data and say, this is the place in the data you should look at, 
as a biologist to understand the system. Yeah. There may be multiple places to look at the data, but at least you're t you're targeting the right direction. Uh, th that's really fun. There's another uh, project we've had the pleasure of working on with a group of researchers at UC San Diego to look at stem cell biology, a uh, different type of medicine, but looking at stem cells and how they differentiate towards becoming a pancreas. This is for pediatric diabetes. And the problem with that differentiation is that stem cells um, are, are stem cells because they can, quote unquote, become any kind of other cell. Uh, we find that certain cells, certain stem cells have a prevalence to becoming one cell or another. But very, very little is still understood about the, the inner biology of why it is that a cell becomes a particular uh, organ. What's the driving forces in that particular pathway? And so with, with uh, researchers at UC San Diego under funding from the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, uh, we've been able to look at stem cells and their differentiation by measuring them at each day for 12 days, 11 days, 11 days, and at each time day, uh, measuring all the RNA sequences in those cells, 4 million sequences, and we do that in triplicate. So 12 million samples per day times 11 days of information. It's a lot of data. And from that, can you help the researchers identify which small RNAs are the ones that are just noise and which ones are the ones that are really the drivers of that process of differentiation? We've been able to help identify particular microRNAs that are involved with that differentiation using machine learning to help cluster the data and look at it in new ways. But then they can go back and say, let's take those out and see if it really does change cell fate, and sure enough it does. So we can really understand the process at a new molecular level because of this technology. So I look at the machine learning today as helping humans understand these systems, these really, really complex systems, and helping them understand them in new ways that weren't allowed before. Because the data is just so big, there's so much volume of information that no human can know how to even look at that information and make sense of it. And it's like finding the needle in the haystack. This is the thing that says, there's the needle. There's, you, you know where the haystack is, there's the needle. Go look at the needle. Uh, and from, from that, then they, you know, then let the researchers do what they do because they're smart humans. They know how to make sense of that. And maybe there's other machine learning tools that are downstream from that. But I'm more at the discovery, uh, discovery end and helping humans make better insight of the data using machine learning. Very true. No, that seems very promising. But from from your knowledge, yeah. how many companies are involved today to develop these machine learning based solutions for medical diagnosis? Is it uh, pure? I mean, are the corporations uh, and that is that are investing or how? What kind of investment also is pouring in? Or are you just a uh, uh, lot of you know institutes like NIH and all these university affiliations? They are more involved. No, I had I had the uh, great pleasure. Great question. I had the pleasure of going up to the uh, the launch festival up in San Francisco just recently. Uh, it's a very, very large startup festival uh, in San Francisco and uh, looking at machine learning companies in healthcare. And so uh, there are many, many companies uh, starting up. There are many, very large companies that are already existing like Google and Intel and those kind of companies that are very interested in healthcare too. But there's a lot of startup interest in coming up with diagnostics, coming up with uh, apps, iPhone apps that help with the particular healthcare interest. Uh, even um, that could even be just as, as, uh, as, as intuitive as what's the right kind of food to eat uh, so that you don't, don't end up having downstream issues. So I consider that to still be healthcare if it's a fitness kind of app too that's gonna help you not have a, a problem downstream. But, but even med medical diagnostics, um, there's a lot of different interest in this right now. I think the problem becomes not that there's a lack of interest. The problem is what's the right modeling type? What's the right machine learning tool? For this particular problem that I might have, 
And I think the community as a whole uh, has a big problem in that there are a lot of buzzwords floating around right now, like deep learning and machine learning and AI. These big buzzwords that everyone knows what it means, but no one knows what it means. Uh, and there, it's not like it's a particular model, like we're going to use a uh, type 2 fuzzy uh, model as input to a neural network, and we're going to evolve that and have sigmoid functions. And we know exactly what the architecture is of this particular model, because that's the right representation for this problem. Very few people think about the problem that way. They just grab one type of machine learning algorithm, and they hope it's going to work on their problem. They try it, and they don't really even optimize it for their problem. And when it doesn't work, they wonder why, because it's supposed to work, because it's deep learning. But um, that's one thing that our company tries to do differently. We try to tailor and customize the software for the data and for the client need to say, we've looked at so many problems over so long, we know that this is the right kind of representation for this kind of problem. And we'll try to help you get the right kind of bang for the buck out of the machine learning. So I do worry that in the rush to get to machine learning in the clinic, uh, there's a lot of companies that are starting up, but they're just gonna grab something and say, it's gonna work and it might not work. And then people are going to wonder, why isn't the field working? Because all there was this big promise. And I worry that it's a little overhyped and oversold at the moment. So that would be a concern. Yes, that is a concern, definitely. And now to apply machine learning to irrespective of communicable or non-communicable non diseases data, it's important to understand the different value of the data that will be used to build the machine learning models. And that's also one of the areas where that could be challenged because a lot of startups, you know, they uh, try to create all these applications without thinking about what kind of data, what source of data they need to use and how to integrate that effectively. So with respect to communicable, non-communicable diseases, data science and machine learning, are all these startups viewing the data equally? Yeah, great question. I don't, I don't think they are. Um, and I think there's different, some, some startups come with their own data. They've, they've accessed a particular data set, uh, maybe out of a university or through their own investigation, they've developed their own data that's proprietary to them. And then they develop their models off of that data. It's a very, value, very valuable strategy to go for. There's other companies that go to public repositories of data from NIH studies, for instance, where taxpayer dollars have been used to develop science. That science gets put on the internet, and those data sets are available for people to investigate. Sometimes for commercial purpose, sometimes not for commercial purpose. You have to be very careful about what you do. Um, but you can use that, those data that are for commercial purpose to try to understand a system like cancer, develop a diagnostic, and then maybe sell that diagnostic. Again, there's regulations about what you can or can't do with that data. It depends on the data. Um, I've seen startups use either of those kinds of approaches uh, and have success. I've seen startups that didn't really know what the right data sets are to use, but they have a great tool, and it's kind of like a hammer in search of nails, and they don't know what nails to search for, and they have no data to use, so it's just a hammer. Uh, and that's difficult, because they're not going to succeed with just the hammer. Uh, so I agree with you. It all starts with the data. And as I mentioned before, it's also not just the type of data. It's the, the quality of data and the, and the types of data you're using about a lot of people. So if you have um, a lot of data, a lot of different types of genomics information, for instance, about just a few people, 10 people, 100 people, it's not enough people to make a decision that's going to be very accurate. You need thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people to be able to make that level of decision, especially if you're not going to try to reduce the features. Yes. It's very easy to have too many features and not enough samples of those features. Uh, not enough patients to be able to make a model. And I see people trying to make models on that lack, lack of data, and in general, they're not going to work very well. That's one, one danger. But then the other danger is 
if the data you're using is not clean and has lots of issues in itself, then you're feeding not so great data into a model and hoping you're going to get some excellent result out the back end. And that's not going to happen either. So you have to be very sensitive to the quality of your data going in, team up with exactly the best people you can find that have the highest quality possible and, and a lot of volume and, and be able to store the data and search the data in a very friendly way and export the data in a safe way that you can then work on it to make a great model that goes back on their system. And this brings up one more other point that I don't want to miss because it's really important. You mentioned it briefly before. The data, the, the solution coming out of machine learning has to be represented to a clinician in a meaningful way to a clinician or else it's not going to be accepted by the clinician. And you pointed out graphical user interfaces as being really important. I totally agree. So if we have a fantastic model, it predicts cancer almost perfectly, and it doesn't come up on a, a graphical user interface for a clinician in an intuitive way, they're just not going to use it. It doesn't get used because they don't understand it. It has to be in such an intuitive way that it's a threat color level or something, a number, or something zero to 10, what's the risk score, or a happy face and a not happy face, something very intuitive that says this is the risk of this particular problem for this patient. Um, and that, that the science of, of, of giving data to a clinician itself is its own kind of problem. Uh, human understanding of this kind of technology is its own problem. Yes, very true, very, yeah. very true. Now, this disease yeah. diagnosis, treatment, prevention, these are all very complex problems and they are all based in part on abundant, abundant data. We need to have enough data and their improvement by machine learning represents incalculable value and opportunity. But uh, what are the laws that govern these healthcare data and the availability of healthcare data in general? Because as you say, there are so many startups working, you know, trying to develop all these applications based on machine learning. But how, how are they getting access to all that data? There must be some laws that are defining who can get access to those data. And there must be some sort of, you know, uh, partnership or regulatory approval or something must be required, right? Yes. So, um, Again, depends on the data, depends on where it's stored. I could speak, for instance, for the NIH data. Uh, so NIH data is a publicly funded uh, experiments, taxpayer dollars, that, that, that data eventually gets put up on the internet, um, typically. Uh, and again, there are great data sets, you, data sets you can get off the internet. You have to get permission from NIH to access those data sets. Um, typically, of course, they're anonymized, so you don't have the patient name or the patient anything information, it's just Patient number one, patient number two, and here's the results. So you never know who that person was. Uh, so they do a fantastic job of making sure things are secure from that perspective. Um, but you have to get vetted by the NIH before you can have access to that data. And again, as I said, some of that data is for research purpose only, and some of it's for commercial purpose, maybe. Depends on the data set and depends on how NIH is feeling about that data set. So I think they're doing a very good job of curating that data, making sure that's safe, and making sure that's secure. Um, uh, there may be other data sets that are available through a university partnership uh, that have the same kind of concerns. Of course, there's even if you make a diagnostic out of that data, you still have, if you're going to get that to a clinic, you still have to go through an FDA approval process that shows that that, that that diagnostic actually does work. It's not just you did it on your on your home PC and it worked great in a, in a research setting. It has to actually work for people. So that costs money to go do those clinical trials and show the efficacy of that, that model. Uh, and then it has to get approval uh, and before it can even go out as a, as a signal to a clinician for actual use. Uh, so I think that at least in America, there are some great hurdles that are appropriate uh, to um, alleviate some of the concerns about the, the data security issue and also the 
um, the HIPAA compliance about not knowing who those people were in training, and then making sure that the models are actually accurate uh, before they actually get to market so we're not making incorrect decisions. I think the, wrong, the worst thing possible for this community right now would be to have models get to market too quickly yeah. that are ineffective. And then the whole clinic, clinic uh, clinician group says, oh, these things are not worth anything. Let's not trust machine learning. So I, I'm, I'm on the process of make it as hard as possible yeah. so we get the best models up there so that everyone trusts them. And let's have that bar, bar be really high. And then it'll develop the trust that we need for the future. Yes, yes, because human lives, you know, yeah. are at risk yes. here. So we have to be very cautious. That's and right. And be very careful. You know, we don't need to rush that that much. We need to make sure we have the meaningful data. Now, that is one, you know, challenge that obviously, you know, we all need to be concerned about that, you know, that is, uh, we, we should not rush into anything. But what are other obstacles from your perspective yeah. that we need to be uh, mindful of to, have some meaningful benefits of machine learning uh, for medicine and how do we yeah. get past that uh, so i think this is the greatest question you've asked so far and i'll answer it this way um i'm very fortunate uh in that i, I grew up in a family that had computer science background uh, so i understood computer science at a young age uh, but i went to biology and i learned the language of biology i learned all about molecular biology and about genomics and i can speak that language uh, so when I come to a problem that says, you know, I understand that here's a, a problem in HIV, it's a very detailed problem about tropism and about particular protein receptors, I can relay that problem in a very clear way to a computer scientist because I speak both languages to say, hey, if we can do this and this and this with this neural network, that will answer this really big biology problem. And finding people that can speak those different languages, they're very different languages, they're very different ways of thinking between computer science and biology. It's unfortunate, but they are. Speak, finding people that can speak both those languages and be the interface is very, very difficult to find. And I find, unfortunately, that in the medical community, it's even harder. I think they're very trained to think a certain way. Uh, they're very trained to be uh, the human experts. They are the human experts in making these decisions. Uh, and But they're trained, they have, their, they have their own language they learned in med school, and that's what they speak. And if you don't know that language, then you're different, and you're not part of that community. And bridging those communities, bridging those scientific disciplines is very difficult to do. And so I think that the greatest benefits to medicine through machine learning come from people that sit on that interface between these communities rather than from one or the other. It is possible to find teams. You have a, 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 a medical doctor who's fantastic medical doctor and a, and a computer scientist who's fantastic computer scientist. And they, they sometimes have this fantastic way of speaking to each other. But most of the time, they're not going to understand each other. And they can both, one can have the best tool ever and one can have the best problem ever. And if they could just meet, they'd have this fantastic solution. But they'll never know because they never talk. Uh, so to me, these kinds of things that we're doing here today and, and other ways of going to a, a particular seminar where it's a, a medical doctor going to a computer science convention or a computer scientist going to a medical convention, those kinds of interactions are what drives the, the, uh, the field forward to me. I think that that's the interface we have to sit on for a little while to get people to trust that people, the people that sit on that interface, to have the fields both merge together. Yes, very true, very true. And also making medicine computational. Right. We need more cooperation and collaboration, and that is itself a huge challenge. How do you think we will achieve that? Because without cooperation, collaboration, we are not going to be able to progress the way we would like to progress in this uh, machine learning based, uh, uh, not only medical diagnosis, but also all other applications for disease care as well as healthcare. 
Yeah, I think you're finding that there are communities in the medical field that are reaching out and understand the value of data science. For instance, first of all, it was just handling, first of all, it was just receiving big data. So understanding how I'm going to handle the flow of information from all the patients in my hospital and how do I store that safely and how do I take care of that. And, and you can talk about that on a different show. But, um, but then they understand that in order to make sense of that data, you do need to hire someone that is a machine learning expert and has the background on that. And reaching out to that community, I think they are trying to do their best to do that. Um, there, are, there are large groups of people that routinely hire in uh, expert on database management and machine learning. I'm, I just hope that the people coming from the machine learning community are the type that are open-minded and speak the language of medicine. Uh, and that's hard to find. Yes, it is hard to find. You're absolutely right. Now, you are both a scientist and an entrepreneur. You have your uh, organization through which you try to help uh, many industries uh, in their machine learning in initiatives. So what are the difficulties you are facing as, you, as an organization or as an individual? Like one you just mentioned, that it's very hard to find uh, resources. But what other challenges uh, do you face that needs to be overcome for uh, initiatives that uh, you are working on to be meaningful and to be able to be successful? Yeah, I, I think that um, the largest problem I think we face is finding not only the, the problems that we can solve. I think that getting to a company, if you're going to go knock on the door of a company or a hospital, for instance, or a clinician, um, going there with a the knowledge of what their problem already is uh, is half the battle if you just knock on the door and hopefully there's a smiling face on the other side and they say here's my problem it's very hard to get people to even explain the problem in a way that you can understand so that you can then solve it with machine learning but if you do some research and understand their problems and say i think you might be facing this kind of problem are you facing that problem because if you are then we can solve it with this method that we have uh, that works out much better so knocking on the doors with the correct person on the other side and with the knowledge going in that this is the solution for them and you're going to help them solve things, I think that's a, that's a win. And that's, that's, helped, that's helped us stay alive as a business for quite some time. Um, it's just as a matter of knocking on a lot of doors. Uh, and some, some doors are still very close-minded, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, we all face them. <laughs> now, if you have the power to influence making machine learning work for not only medical diagnosis, but overall medical care, disease care, as well as healthcare, where would you like to see the development happening? If I had the opportunity to help, uh, if you have the power resources? to influence, wow, fantastic! Wow, um, I think it would go back to your your other question about epidemiology. I really do think that uh, that is a problem that is so large uh, that we really have just a small sensing, small ability to sense at the moment. We we probably aren't collecting all the information we could or should. It's a very expensive problem to collect the right information because it's very, very large sensors and very, very large areas to, to worry about. Um, that's a really, really big concern. And I think, unfortunately, of course, as the human population increases, we're probably going to see those kind of epidemics more often because there's more people. Uh, and again, evolution has a way. Uh, so unfortunately, I think those things are going to be a recurring problem for us. Uh, I would. I still think natural, natural, natural epidemics are still a problem, just as much as artificial ones. So I would do something about um, exactly as you said, helping to forecast uh, the risks of those kinds of pandemics. Maybe uh, forecasting the risks and hopefully doing something to decrease the risks, especially in undeveloped nations where it might be very difficult to de-risk those populations because they have to do their 
particular daily jobs and they don't have much choice about that because that's the way they survive. Yes. Um, that's a difficult thing. I think it's also very difficult once those kinds of problems start to know how to push the evolution of those pandemics in a particular direction so it runs them into a dead end and they end up being quicker to ending rather than um, and going forth uh, and taking out a whole continent, for instance, that would be terrible. Um, so I, I do think that there's a fantastic benefit for machine learning in solving very, very large scale human health problems. I think we're still very focused, in fact, in this discussion on individualized care, which is, again, a great place to be starting. And I think that's a great place for, for the research to be right now. But I'm very interested in the bigger, large scale global problems uh, that face all humanity. Of course. Now, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners who are interested in machine learning and its application, especially the students, the young uh, mind who are very curious and who are very uh, devoted and who wants to make a difference, who wants to uh, do something to help the global community in overcoming the challenges? What would you like to tell them? Yeah, so if you're fantastic. So if you're going to come from a computer science background and you want to use machine learning, so you have to know computer, you have to know computer science. So be very good at doing machine learning and statistics. Understand statistics to be able to solve problems and know where you can apply machine learning. That's the first basis. So you have to be very good as a programmer. The second thing you've got to do, I know it's very difficult when you're doing your computer science degree because you're very focused on this this task ahead of you of getting your degree. But you have to go like take uh, go listen to biology seminars or go take biology classes or go do something else to learn that language. It could be that you want to interface for healthcare and help solve humanity's healthcare problems. Definitely go talk to biologists and understand biologists and understand their way of talking. If it is you want to help with chemistry, go take computer, go take chemistry classes or listen to chemistry seminar. Find some other non-computer science discipline that you can go listen to, just to listen to it to understand the language. You don't have to understand it well enough to get a degree. You have to understand it well enough to speak it. It's just like learning a different language. And then, if you, then you can say, hey, is this a particular problem? Because I've got a tool that I know can help solve this problem. And you can speak to them in their language. Then they'll be able to say, yes, wow, I, where have you been all my life? And then you can help them solve their problem. If you can't speak their language, it makes this divide so large that you're almost not useful. And that's a, that's a problem. You need to have someone then be your interpreter versus you being the interpreter to begin with. Yes. That's a very good advice and that's a very good suggestion for the, our global viewers and listeners. So thank you so much, Dr. Fogel, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on machine learning for medical diagnosis. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the application of intelligent machines across medical diagnostic sector and its associated opportunities and risk. And even if a single individual or entity is able to come up with ideas to make medical diagnostics affordable, accessible, and effective based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today. This Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Wonderful. So as we speak, machine learning, deep learning, and artificial intelligence are transforming the disease care healthcare industry while they improve patient outcomes and change the ways doctors think about providing disease care as well as healthcare. They also bring very complex security challenges and other, you know, challenges that needs to be managed effectively. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace 
geospace and space we at risk group believe that risk management security and peace they walk together hand in hand though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two all three concepts feed into each other we believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations tradition becomes our security so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace let's manage the existing and emerging risk together for more information on the risk roundups to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.